Letter 131 of Letters of John Keats to His Family and Friends Edited by Sidney Colvin This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo To Georgiana Keats, Thursday, January 13, 1820 My dear sister, by the time you receive this, your trouble will be over. I wish you knew they were half over. I mean that George is safe in England and in good health. To write to you by him is almost like following one's own letter in the mail. That it may not be quite so, I will leave common intelligence out of the question, and write wide of him as I can. I fear I must be dull, having had no good-natured flip from fortune's finger since I saw you and no sideway comfort in the success of my friends. I could almost promise that if I had the means I would accompany George back to America and pay you a visit of a few months. I should not think much of the time or my absence from my books, or I have no right to think, for I am very idle. But then I ought to be diligent, and at least keep myself within the reach of materials for diligence. Diligence, that I do not mean to say, I should say dreaming over my books, or rather other people's books. George has promised to bring you to England when the five years have elapsed. I regret very much that I shall not be able to see you before that time, and even then I must hope that your affairs will be in so prosperous a way as to induce you to stop longer. Yours is a hardish fate to be so divided among your friends and settled among a people you hate. You will find it improved. You have a heart that will take hold of your children. Even George's absence will make things better. His return will banish what must be your greatest sorrow, and at the same time, minor ones with it. Robinson Crusoe, when he saw himself in danger of perishing on the waters, looked back to his island as to the haven of his happiness, and on gaining it once more, was more content with his solitude. We smoke George about his little girl. He runs the common beaten road of every father, as I dare say you do of every mother. There is no child like his child, so original. Original forsooth. However, I take you at your words. I have a lively faith that yours is the very gem of all children. Ain't I its uncle? On Henry's marriage, there was a piece of bride cake sent me. It missed its way. I suppose the carrier coachman was a conjurer, and wanted it for his own private use. Last Sunday, George and I dined at Millar's. There were your mother and Charles with Fool Lacon Esquire, who sent the sly, disinterested Shaw to Miss Millar, with his own heathen name engraved in the middle. Charles had a silk handkerchief belonging to Miss Grover, with whom he pretended to be smitten, and for her sake kept exhibiting and adoring the handkerchief all the evening, Fool Lakin Esquire treated it with a little venturesome, trembling contumely, whereupon Charles set him quietly down on the floor from where he has quietly got up. This process was repeated at supper time when your mother said, If I were you, Mr. Lacon, I would not let him do so. Fool Lacon Esquire did not offer any remark. He will undoubtedly die in his bed. Your mother did not look quite so well on Sunday. Mrs. Henry Wiley is excessively quiet before people. I hope she is always so. 
Yesterday we dined at Taylor's in Fleet Street. George left early after dinner to go to Dupford. He will make all square there for me. I could not go with him. I did not like the amusement. Haslam is a very good fellow indeed. He has been excessively anxious and kind to us. But is this fair? He has an inna morata at Deptford, and he has been wanting me for some time past to see her. This is a thing which it is impossible not to shirk. A man is like a magnet. He must have a repelling end. So how am I to see Haslam's lady and family, if I even went? For by the time I got to Greenwich, I should have repelled them to Blackheath. By the time I got to Deptford, they would be on Shooter's Hill. When I came to Shooter Hill, they would alight at Chatham, and so on, till I drove them into the sea, which I think might be indictable. The evening before yesterday, we had a pianoforte hop at Dilks. There was very little amusement in the room, but a Scotchman to hate. Some people, you must have observed, have a most unpleasant effect upon you when you see them speaking in profile. The Scotchman is the most accomplished fellow in this way I ever met with. The effect was complete. It went down like a dose of bitters, and I hope will improve my digestion. At Taylor's, too, there was a Scotchman, not quite so bad, for he was as clean as he could get himself. Not having succeeded in Drury Lane with our tragedy, we have been making some alterations and are about to try Convict Garden. Brown has just done patching up the copy, as it is altered. The reliance I had on it was in Keene's acting. I'm not afraid it will be damned in the garden. You said in one of your letters that there was nothing but Hayden and company in mine. There can be nothing of him in this, for I never see him or company. George has introduced us to an American of the name of Hart. I like him in a moderate way. He was at Mrs. Dilk's party and sitting by me. We began talking about English and American ladies. The Miss blank, and some of their friends made a not very enticing row opposite us. I bade him mark them and form his judgment of them. I told him I hated Englishmen because they were the only men I knew. He does not understand this. Who would be braggadocio to Johnny Bull? Johnny's house is his castle, and a precious dull castle it is. What a many bull castles there are in so-and-so crescent. I never wish myself an unversed writer and newsmonger, but when I write to you. I should like for a day or two to have somebody's knowledge, Mr. Lecon's, for instance, of all the different folks of a wide acquaintance to tell you about. Only let me have his knowledge of family minutiae, and I would set them in a proper light. But bless me, I never go anywhere. My pen is no more garrulous than my tongue. Any third person would think I was addressing myself to a lover of scandal. But we know we do not love scandal, but fun. And if scandal happens to be fun, that is no fault of ours. There were very good pickings for me in George's letters about the prairie settlement. If I had any taste to turn them to account in England, I knew a friend of Miss Andrews, yet I never mentioned her to him. For after I had read the letter, I really did not recollect her story. Now I have been sitting here half an hour with my invention at work to say something about your mother or Charles or Henry, but it is in vain. I know not what to say. Three nights since, George went with your mother to the play. 
I hope she will soon see mine acted. I do not remember ever to have thanked you for your tassels to my Shakespeare. There he hangs, so ably supported opposite me. I thank you now. It is a continual memento of you. If you should have a boy, do not christen him John, and persuade George not to let his partiality for me come across. Tis a bad name, and goes against a man. If my name had been Edmund, I should have been more fortunate. I was surprised to hear of the state of society at Louisville. It seems to me you are just as ridiculous there as we are here. Three-penny parties, half-penny dances. The best thing I've heard of is your shooting, for it seems you follow the gun. Give my compliments to Mrs. Audubon, and tell her I cannot think her either good-looking or honest. Tell Mr. Audubon he's a fool, and Briggs that tis well I was not Mr. A. Saturday, January 15. It is strange that George, having to stop so short a time in England, I should not have seen him for nearly two days. He has been to Haslam's and does not encourage me to follow his example. He had given promise to dine with the same party tomorrow, but he has sent an excuse which I am glad of, as we shall have a pleasant party with us tomorrow. We expect Charles here today. This is a beautiful day. I hope you will not quarrel with it if I call it an American one. The sun comes upon the snow and makes a prettier candy than we have on Twelfth Night Cakes. George is busy this morning in making copies of my verses. He is making one now of an ode to the nightingale, which is like reading an account of the black hole at Calcutta on an iceberg. You will say this is a matter of course. I am glad it is. I mean that I should like your brothers more the more I know them. I should spend much more time with them if our lives are more run in parallel. But we can talk but on one subject. That is you. The more I know of men, the more I know how to value entire liberality in any of them. Thank God there are a great many who will sacrifice their worldly interests for a friend. I wish there were more who would sacrifice their passions. The worst of men are those whose self-interest are their passion. The next, those whose passions are their self-interest. Upon the whole, I dislike mankind. Whatever people on the other side of the question may advance, they cannot deny that they are always surprised at hearing of a good action, and never of a bad one. I am glad you have something to like in America. Doves. Gertrude of Wyoming and Birkbeck's book should be bound up together like a brace of decoy ducks. One is almost as poetical as the other. Precious miserable people at the prairie. I have been sitting in the sun whilst I wrote this till it's become quite oppressive. This is very odd for January. The Vulcan fire is the true natural heat for winter. The sun has nothing to do in winter but to give a little glooming light much like a shade. Our Irish servant has piqued me this morning by saying that her father in Ireland was very much like my Shakespeare, only he had more color than the engraving. You will find on George's return that I have not been neglecting your affairs. The delay was unfortunate, not faulty. Perhaps by this time you have received my last three letters, not one of which had reached before George sailed. I would give two pence to have been over the world as much as he has. 
I wish I had money enough to do nothing but travel about for years. Were you now in England, I dare say, you would be able, setting aside the pleasure you would have in seeing your mother, to suck out more amusement for society than I am able to do. To me, it is all as dull here as Louisville could be. I am tired of the theatres. Almost all the parties I may chance to fall into, I know by heart. I know the different styles of talk in different places, what subjects will be started, how it will proceed like an acted play, from the first to the last act. If I go to Hans, I run my head into many tunes heard before, old puns and old music, to Hayden's worn-out discourses of poetry and painting. The Miss Blank, I am afraid to speak to, for fear of some sickly reiteration of phrase or sentiment. When they were at the dance the other night, I tried manfully to sit near and talk to them, but to no purpose, and if I had, it would have been to no purpose still. My question or observation must have been an old one, and the rejoinder very antique indeed. At Dilks I fall foul of politics. Tis best to remain aloof from people, and like their good parts, without being eternally troubled with the dull process of their everyday lives. When once a person has smoked the vapidness of the routine of society, he must either have self-interest or the love of some sort of distinction to keep him in good humor with it. All I can say is that, standing at Charing Cross and looking east, west, north, and south, I can see nothing but dullness. I hope while I am young to live retired in the country. When I grow in years and have a right to be idle, I shall enjoy cities more. If the American ladies are worse than the English, they must be very bad. You say you should like your Emily brought up here. You had better bring her up yourself. You know a good number of English ladies. What iconium could you give a half-dozen of them? The greater part seem to me downright American. I have known more than one, Mrs. Audubon. Her affectation of fashion and politeness cannot transcend ours. Look at our cheapside tradesmen's sons and daughters, only fit to be taken off by a plague. I hope now soon to come to the time when I shall never be forced to walk through the city and hate as I walk. Monday, January 17. George had a quick rejoinder to his letter of excuse to Haslam so we had not his company yesterday, which I was sorry for, as there was our old set. I know three witty people all distinct in their excellence, Rice, Reynolds, and Richards. Rice is the wisest, Reynolds the playfulest, Richards the out-of-the-wayest. The first makes you laugh and think, the second makes you laugh and not think, the third puzzles your head. I admire the first, I enjoy the second, I stare at the third. The first is claret, the second ginger beer, the third creme de bibarapam drag. The first is inspired by Minerva, the second by Mercury, the third by Harlequin Epigram Esquire. The first is neat in his dress, the second slovenly, the third uncomfortable. The first speaks adagio, the second allegretto, the third both together. The first is Swiftian, the second Tom Cribbian, the third Shandian. And yet, 
These three eons are not three eons, but one eon. Charles came on Saturday, but went early. He seems to have schemes and plans and wants to get off. He is quite right. I am glad to see him employed at business. You remember I wrote you a story about a woman named Alice being made young again, or some such stuff. In your next letter, tell me whether I gave it as my own, or whether I gave it as a matter Brown was employed upon at the time. He read it over to George the other day, and George said he had heard it all before. So Brown suspects I have been giving you his story as my own. I should like to set him right in it by your evidence. George has not returned from town. When he does, I shall tax his memory. We had a young, long, raw, lean Scotchman with us yesterday, called Thornton. Rice, for fun or for mistake, would persist in calling him Stevenson. I know three people of no wit at all, each distinct in his excellence. A, B, and C. A is the foolishest. B is the sulkiest. C is a negative. A makes you yawn. B makes you hate. As for C, you never see him at all, though he were six feet high. I bear the first. I forbear the second. I'm not certain that the third is. The first is gruel. The second, ditchwater. The third is spilt. He ought to be wiped up. A is inspired by Jack of the Clock. B has been drilled by a Russian sergeant. C, they say, is not his mother's true child, but she bought him of the man who cries, Young lambs to sell. Twang dillo dee. This, you must know, is the amen to nonsense. I know a good many places where amen should be scratched out, rubbed over with a ponce made of mamo's little finger bones, and in its place, twang dillo d written this is the word i shall be tempted to write at the end of most modern poems every american book ought to have it it would be a good distinction in society my lords wellington and castlereagh and canning and many more would do well to wear twang dillo d on their backs instead of ribbons at their buttonholes how many people would go sideways along walls and quickset hedges to keep their twang dillo d out of sight or wear large pigtails to hide it however there would be so many that the twang dillo d's would keep one another in countenance which brown cannot do for me i have fallen away lately thieves and murderers would gain rank in the world for would any of them have the poorness of spirit to condescend to be a twang dillo d i've robbed many a dwelling-house I have killed many a fowl, many a goose, and many a man, would such a gentleman say. But thank heaven, I was never yet a twang dillo dee. Some philosophers in the moon, who spy at our globe as we do at theirs, say that twang dillo dee is written in large letters on our globe of earth. They say the beginning of the T is just on the spot where London stands. London being built within the flourish, Juan reaches downward, and slants as far as Timbuktu in Africa. The tail of the G goes slap across the Atlantic into the Rio de la Plata. The remainder of the letters wrap around New Holland, and the last E terminates in land we have not yet discovered. However, I must be silent. These are dangerous times to libel a man in. 
much more world. Friday, 27, for 28th January, 1820. I wish you would call me names. I deserve them so much. I've only written two sheets for you to carry by George, and those I forgot to bring to town, and have therefore to forward them to Liverpool. George went this morning at six o'clock by the Liverpool coach. His being on his journey to you prevents my regretting his short stay. I have no news of any sort to tell you. Henry is wife-bound in Camden Town. There's no getting him out. I am sorry he has not a prettier wife. Indeed, tis a shame. She is not half a wife. I think I could find some of her relations in Buffon, or Captain Cook's Voyages, or the Hieroglyphics in Moore's Almanac, or upon a Chinese clock door, the Shepherdses on her own mantelpiece, or in a cruel sampler in which she may find herself worsted, or in a Dutch toy shop window, or one of the daughters in the ark, or any picture shop window. As I intend to retire into the country, where there will be no sort of news, I shall not be able to write you very long letters. Besides, I am afraid the postage comes to too much, which till now I have not been aware of. People in military bands are generally seriously occupied. None may or can laugh at their work but the kettle drum, long drum, do triangle and cymbals. Thinking you might want a rat-catcher, I put your mother's old Quaker colored cat into the top of your bonnet. She's with kitten, so you may expect to find a whole family. I hope the family will not grow too large for its lodging. I shall send you a close written sheet on the first of next month, but for fear of missing the Liverpool post, I must finish here. God bless you and your little girl. Your affectionate brother, John Keats. End of letter 131